Alright, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Colossians. Um, if you're going to use one of the Bibles we provided for you, that's going to be on page 983. And the Bible's there underneath the seats. And so, uh, as I shared earlier, we are going to be rolling through the book of Colossians over the next uh, several weeks. And uh, it is an exciting time as we dive into this great little letter that Paul wrote to this, this small group of followers in Christ at Colossae. As we uh, open up this series, I want to take you back to a time in my childhood. It was Christmas 1987. Uh, two days earlier, I had just turned seven years old, and you can imagine that the night before Christmas, I rolled into my bed, and there were sugar plums dancing in my head. No, not really. Um, when I rolled out of bed, there were maybe visions of like Transformers and you know, like University of Kentucky gear. That's where I'm from, and maybe some other you know, like random cool toys, you know, circa the late '80s. And so you can imagine the excitement, right? Every kid at Christmas, they cannot wait to go into the area, maybe living room, dining room, where the Christmas tree is located. And so I go to the Christmas tree, and I'm kind of checking everything out, right? And I'm noticing that my sister hit the jackpot. I mean, she just like, man, I'm seeing Barbie dolls and like a little car, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I'm looking over at my side of the tree, and it's quite thin. I'm thinking, man, like, what happened here? Is this like Dollar Store Central? Like, what, what just you know happened here to my side of the tree? And so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm trying to be a good kid, right? I'm trying to be, you know, thankful and you know, happy for my sister, and you know, not complain. Um, and all the while, I'm just thinking on the inside, this is injustice. What on earth just happened here? And then my parents said, hey, Tanner, are you ready for breakfast yet? And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for breakfast. It's better than this you know, Christmas tree deal here. And so I, I go into the dining room, and there it is. A new, shining, gleam, gleaming Commodore 128. All right, now, those of you who grew up on, like, Instant Messenger... That was like the 1987 version of a new iMac, all right? I mean, I, I hit the jackpot that Christmas. I got a brand new computer. Okay, Google it when you get you know, home later today. Commodore 128. This, this was my gift. So I run over there. I sit down. I'm sitting in front of my new computer. Best Christmas ever. And in the ensuing moments, what do you think that I did? Did I go over to my sister and put my armor around my sister who's a few years old and say, Hey, thanks, Courtney, big sis. You're awesome. Thanks for getting me this computer. No. Did I call up my kindergarten teacher and say, Hey, I can't believe how generous you are. Thanks for sending this computer to my house. This is awesome. No. After I kind of got over the shock, what did I do? I went to my parents who were responsible for me getting the sweet new Commodore 128. And you know, this is a small picture of what Paul does in the book of Colossians. And we're going to open up this first chapter. What Paul is going to do is this. He's, a, he's not going to thank you know, Epaphras who took the gospel to the Colossians. He's not going to even think the Colossians themselves. He's not going to thank Timothy. He's not going to thank anyone else. But he's going to thank God. Because God is responsible 
for what we're going to look at this morning, the advance of the gospel. Now, why would we choose this book to study through as really the first book in the life of our church? We're going to just roll through a book and really study it. Well, it's this. It's because this young church had the same need that I believe this young church has today. And that is we need to be founded upon the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. You see, there were these false teachers in Colossae. Okay, some people refer to this as the Colossian heresy. There, it was kind of a mix of, of Judaistic teaching on the one hand, as we'll see as we study throughout this, that, that was saying you have to keep certain commands to be you know, accepted by God. Christ isn't sufficient. He's not supreme. And on the other hand, there was this um, kind of developing incipient Gnosticism. And you say, what on earth is that? It was a, it was a philosophy of thought that said uh, everything that's kind of spiritual and material is good, but everything that's material is, is evil, is bad. And added to that, Gnostics believe that you kind of had to have these special professors that would give you the secret knowledge in order to be able to relate and to know God. And so Paul's going to say, look, they are way off their rocker here. We need to understand that Jesus is supreme. He's sufficient. And just do me a favor. Sometime this week, read through the book of Colossians. It's four chapters, maybe 10 or 12 minutes. And what you're going to find is over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus, Christ, Christ, Jesus, Christ is just central all throughout. And Paul will make these awesome statements like Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He'll say that Jesus created all things and added to that that all things were created for Jesus, Colossians 1.16. He'll say that Jesus is the head of the church, not the pope, not the pastors, not anyone. Jesus is in charge of his church. He'll make a statement in Colossians 2, 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 9 says that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. He'll say in Colossians 3, 11, Christ is all and in all. And then at the end of 1, 18, he says that all of this is that Jesus might have the preeminence, or as some translations say, that he might have the supremacy in all things. So that's where we're going in the series. We want to hammer on the supremacy of Christ and how that should color and transform all these different areas of our lives. Because if we're being honest, and some of you may be like kind of new to the faith, and some of the others of us are like kind of old in the faith, or semi-old in the faith, but, but, but the reality, probably the vast majority of us, is that we do not always live as if Christ is supreme. Now why is that? It's because we have so many other things going on in life, right? We have you know, all of these competing allegiances that are pulling for our affection and our interest. And we fail to live in light of the reality of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is going to go after here. And specifically this morning, we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ in the advance of of the gospel. And what he's going to teach us, we're going to be covering the first 14 verses. What Paul's going to teach us this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is loaded with power to transform lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is loaded with power to transform lives. What 
Paul does here in these first couple verses, he's writing a letter, remember, just like we say, you know, dear John, dear Sally. He gives a greeting at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. Look what he says. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God got him into this deal, and he is an apostle sent out by God to take the gospel to all who need it. And Timothy. We just read about Timothy earlier in the service. Timothy was one of his protégés in the faith, and he's training Timothy up. He, Timothy was with Paul. He says, Timothy, our brother. Now, who's the letter to? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let me just make a quick, couple quick comments here. Paul calls believers saints. All right? If you're a believer in Christ, this might be shocking to you, but you are a saint. All right? This, this term in Scripture is not kind of the popular um, usage that we have today of like a saint is this like, you know, almost perfect person with, you know, almost perfect moral purity. No, it's someone who is set apart, devoted to God, been called out by God to, to love Him and follow Him and worship Him with your lives. That's a saint. And so Paul says, to the saints and faithful brothers. Now you might see a little footnote in your Bible, brothers. Is, it was a, a Greek word, adelphoi, which um, included siblings and a family. Okay, so like ladies don't think that this letter isn't written to ladies too. Okay, this was siblings and a family, brothers and sisters is often translated uh, in Christ at Colossae. And then he gives this, this, this word of blessing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we learn as we're going to study these uh, verses here together this morning. And there are really two truths that I want to encourage you with this morning, encourage us with. Uh, number one, the first truth is this, that, that we should give thanks to God for His transforming work in the gospel. Give thanks to God for His transforming work in the gospel. Check out verse 3. This is what I was talking about just a minute ago. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, why is that, Paul? Why would you thank God when you pray for these Colossians? Well, verse 4 and following tells us, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. A couple of things about the gospel that we're going to see. Number one, the gospel is the word of truth. Paul describes the gospel in verse 5 as the word of truth. Now, what does the word gospel mean? This is important for us to understand, right? And especially this church, but we're trying to send everything on the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's an announcement of news. Specifically, Paul and these writers in the, in the New Testament use the word God, the, God, the gospel to refer to news about Jesus, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He says that this word of the gospel is a word of truth. And here we might in our day have a little bit of pause because there are so many people who question the very notion and existence of truth, right? 
you have radical relativists, if you will, that say, you know, <laughs> absolute truth, there is absolutely no thing as absolute truth, which is a somewhat curious statement because it sounds pretty absolute, right? So you have those people on the one hand. You have others who say, mm, there probably is a truth, but we can't know what that truth is. Then you have still others who would say truth is like a social construct. That it's, you know, there are some things that are true for some people in some communities, but that is truth for them. And then uh, truth is constructed in other communities for them, and it's just kind of functional and pragmatic, but it's not universal. But the Bible teaches us that there is absolute truth that is both accessible and relevant for all people in all times and all places. This is the claim of Scripture. Now, what are these claims of the gospel? That God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we can never do for ourselves. So what is the gospel? Listen to this. This is kind of the storyline of the Bible. God created, okay? God the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, all active in creation. He created the world and everything in it. And why did he create it? Well, as God, as nothing more supreme or glorious than God, he created everything to point to his glory, to light him up, to show how great that he is. So this is the claim that we, the Bible makes and that we make in the church, is that all people, everywhere, every person in this room, you are made for God's glory. Now, the sad news, the bad news in the gospel is that if we're being honest, every person in here would have to say, I haven't glorified God. I haven't lived my life in a way that reflects his character and his worth. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 23. All of sin and Paul short of the glory of God. We fail to worship God as we should because we have uh, these idols in our lives, right? We have things in our life. An idol is anything that we place above God. So whether that's money, possessions, sex, relationships, ambition, success, whatever that pursuit is that has usurped the place of God on the throne of our lives, that is an idol to us. And as John Calvin says, our hearts are like idol factors. We just keep producing these idols in our life. We're really good at being idolaters. Right? So you may think, man, the Bible has kind of a pessimistic view of of, of human beings, well, it just has a, a, a real view. This is just who we are. We test it out and see. Look, look around, and you're going to find this. People aren't worshiping God with their life. I said, well, then, I thought the gospel was good news. Well, how, do, how do you get there? Well, God does for us, in Christ, what we can never do to ourselves. He pursues us, and He sends Jesus to be the perfect worshiper who always fulfilled righteousness. He always did the right thing. Where we feel, failed, Jesus succeeded and lived out the truth of God so that he could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. So why did Jesus die? He died so that he might be the substitute. Where I deserve death and condemnation and judgment, Jesus took that upon himself in the cross. That is the meaning of the cross. Added to that, on the third day after his death, he rose again, triumphing over. We sing this song about a church arise and put your armor on. I mean, what is all that about? It's about the fact that Christ in the cross, in his resurrection, triumphed over sin, Satan, and uh, and, and, and all the works of, of, um, of, of, the, of, of the world. Okay? And so then for all who believe and trust in Jesus and embrace him as the Lord of their life, 
They can be a bride of God. They can be redeemed to be now a worshiper of God. Their sin no longer has to separate them. They no longer have to experience spiritual death in this life and eternal death in the life to come. This is what the Bible says the gospel And so let me just pause and say, have you ever heard this before? And if so, have you because it would just be fine with me if we just kind of shut down this whole series and this whole sermon. And, you know, if we just had to stop right here so that people could really get this, this is the most important message. But you know Jesus and follow Jesus and love Jesus and worship him with your life. So that is the gospel. And Paul is jacked up about what God is doing in the gospel because these Colossians have received this. It says that he has heard of their faith in Christ. They have faith in Jesus. That is how a person is saved by God's grace, through faith in Christ and what he's done, not in what they can do to earn their way to God, which is the distinction between Christianity and all other religions. Got it? So Paul gives things because the gospel, the word of truth, has come to them, but also because the gospel is pregnant with the power to transform people's lives. The gospel brings transformation. And we see this in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, look at verse 4. It says that they have love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So not only does the gospel change the way that we relate to God, it also changes the way that we relate to one another. Now we have love for people that we didn't have before. We have a hope. What is hope? A confident expectation in God's ability to fulfill His promises. So in other words... This world is not as good as it gets. I think, again, we would probably all agree with that. But then, well, is there anything better than Bible? Absolutely. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, and God will return to right, as John mentioned, uh, in light of now, every wrong, every form of human evil, every aspect of suffering, God will make it right in the new heavens and the new earth. So now they have this hope. It's transforming the way that they live their lives. And then look in verse uh, 5 and uh, 6. It says, Of this you have heard before in the worship of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here is the beautiful thing about the gospel. And this is really what we should pray for as a church. Not just the leaders, like all of us who are committed to this church. We should pray that the gospel would bring transformation both deep and wide. This is what Paul says here. He says that the gospel that came to you is bearing fruit and it's growing. Not only in Colossae, but indeed in the whole world. It's Paul's kind of uh, rhetorical exaggeration to say this is happening all over the place. People are believing in Christ, and they're following Christ, and their lives are being changed. Now, let's go down a little bit there. Number one says that they're bearing fruit. What does this mean? It means that they were, um, their lives had been changed, and they were producing the fruit of good works in their life. They were producing the fruit of the Spirit. We find in Galatians 5, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That all these things were coming out of their lives. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, let me just encourage you that the gospel brings change in your life. It's a whole new worldview. It's a whole new way of life. And so for, for those of you who may be wrestling with this, I mean, 
we're inviting you to a new way of life. We're inviting you to a love that you've never experienced before and a love that you've never given before. We're inviting you to peace that transcends all understanding. We're inviting you to a God who is perfectly in control. Even when the most evil forms of suffering are experienced in your life, here's the beautiful thing about Christians. As we live out our faith properly, we sleep really well at night. We don't have to worry because God is king. And so Paul says that they're bearing fruit, they're displaying the gospel to those around them. And then he also says that it's growing. In other words, it's spreading. That more and more people are coming to embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. So again, this is what we want to see happen in Jesus Christ that happens in Jesus Christ. We want to see in, in redemption help. All right? We want to see the gospel transform our lives and give growth that is both deep and wide. You know, the redemption is a, a big church. Um, yeah, I hope that we grow in a biblical way. So if we grow in a biblical way, we will both grow simultaneously deeper into what it means to live like Jesus, and we will necessarily grow numerically because people are coming in Christ and wanting to be a part of this whole deal. And so before we move on, let's just ask the question, how does the gospel then break into people's lives? How does this happen? And from the divine perspective, we know that it happens by God's grace, right? That's what Paul says. I mean, when we weren't pursuing God, God was pursuing us. That's grace. But then added to that, we see from the human perspective that there was this man in verse 7 named Epaphras who took the gospel to the Colossians. Look in verse 7 and 8. It says that they learned this gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. And so this guy, Epaphras, he probably became a follower of Christ during Paul's missionary stay at the city called Ephesus. All right? It was about 100 miles from Colossae. So there is a good probability that Epaphras came to receive the gospel when Paul was at Ephesus. Now, Epaphras, like a good follower of Christ, didn't just receive it, but he decided to take what he had received and then give it away. And so he goes to Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, and he starts to tell people about Jesus, which is, by the way, what we ought to be doing as believers in Christ. Right? I mean, if this is good news, shouldn't we want to share it with people? I mean, I know it's not like particularly popular today. I mean, I was just at a coffee shop a few months ago, and, and, and the lady found out that I was a pastor, right? So that's always interesting. And, uh, and she said, you know what I really appreciate about you? You don't try to proselytize. I was thinking, wow, you know, am, I, am I blowing it here? Is this you know, maybe a good thing? And, and so, so here's the deal. Here's the encouragement. We can live out our faith. And we can actually share the gospel in a loving, humble, and even persuasive way. In a way that doesn't come across as a jerk. All right? It's not as if we, you know, take our Bibles, especially like big ones like this, and have to like whack people over the head with the gospel. We can actually share the gospel just in everyday conversation. We think about this week, 9-11 today. Is there anything in that news story that maybe 
that you can share the gospel out of? I mean, are there matters of life and death? Are there matters of justice? I mean, is God a God of justice? I mean, do we all long for justice? Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Can you share that with somebody? Can you uh, share how that we respond when we're wrong? How that, that the Christian worldview is that we even pray and love our enemies? I mean, who's doing that? There are all kinds of opportunities to, to talk about the gospel with people and to share this good news. So Paul, in these first eight verses, he says, Give thanks to God for his transforming work in the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 9 through 14, he moves from thanksgiving to prayer. And in verses 3 through 8, he was thanking God for what God had done in the gospel. In verses 9 through 14, he was going to pray that that work would continue. All right, so, so here's the second encouragement. Not only we give thanks, but we are to pray that people would live for the pleasure and glory of God. Let's read these verses together. Um, verses 9 through 14. He says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's just break this down very briefly. What is the heart of Paul's prayer? Well, first he makes this request. He, he asked God, this is a great way to pray about that, 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 they, that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will. That's the primary request here. Now, why does he do this? It's because he wants them to live for, it says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing and respect. So to summarize that, so that they would live for the pleasure and glory of God. Now, how? How do we do this? I mean, in the Greek, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, 9 through 14 are one sentence. Okay, Paul can really put some words together. And so there are actually four participles that modify how that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And here it is. They can bear fruit in every good work. They increase in the knowledge of God. They're strengthened to persevere. And finally, they can give thanks for the gospel. Now, let's spend some time breaking this down a little more in depth. Um, number one, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of to be filled is to be completely controlled, totally controlled by what? By the knowledge of his will. And again, kind of today, sometimes we're, we're thinking about discerning God's will, and so we're asking these huge questions in life, like, where should I go to school? Should I move to this city? Who should I marry? Who should I date? All these big questions, right? And that is not exactly what Paul has in mind. Alright? Paul has in mind a knowledge of his will in the sense that we would ethically live out the will of God and his will for our lives. All right? It doesn't necessarily exclude the other, but the primary idea here is that we would live our lives in such a way that we reflect the character of God. Now, he goes on to clarify this, and he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, in verse 9. 
So, so why does he why does he clarify? Why does he qualify? Because there are situations in our everyday life, right, where we don't have maybe a command in the Bible, but the Bible is you know, our authority for life and practice. We believe that God has spoken in the Bible, so we you know, preach the Bible and talk about the Bible and hold it up as you know, really valuable. Um, but, but the Bible might not tell you, hey, when you go to class on Tuesday, you need to say this to that person or act in a certain way to that person or respond to your professor in a certain way when they then you know, kind of a smile to your question that you just asked. And so it takes spiritual wisdom and understanding to know how to apply the principles and truths of the Bible. And so this is why Paul says that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now why? So that they might walk in a manner, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So this is the purpose of this. Why would, so why would you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ to be filled with knowledge of his will so that their life might reflect the worth of God and be pleasing to God? I love what one of my mentors in seminary, Dr. Danny Aiken, says when he was asked a question, how would you summarize your philosophy of life in ten words or less? And this is what he says. He says, all that matters in life is that you please God. Think about that. All that matters in life is that you please God. Don't you think if you live your life for the pleasure of God that kind of all these other details in life will probably be worked out as well? That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. And so he prays this prayer for them to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of God. And then how does this happen? Well, there are four ways, all right, and they're coming up here on the screen. Number one, bear fruit in every good work. It says bearing fruit in verse 10 in every good work. So let's define a good work. What is a good work? It's, it's any good thing that you do that reflects the character of God and the will of God. Any good thing that you do. So you must not put limits on this. It's not, it's not just walking in the leg across the street. Uh, it's just it's not just being, you know, kind to your roommate or your spouse. It's any good thing that you do that reflects the character and the will of God. And why would Paul be about this? Well, it's because a living and active faith, a true faith, is going to necessarily produce good works. I mean, James, too, says that if our faith does not produce good works, then our faith is dead. It's not, it's not real. It's not the real thing. And so, as you evaluate your life, and as you pray for others, do you pray that they would bear fruit in every good work? Number two, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. You see, our lives are a pursuit of knowledge in so many ways, right? Maybe your field of study, maybe your profession, you're constantly taking information. It's going to help you excel in your field. I mean, it, it, it may be a lighter level. Maybe you, you're really intrigued by the presidential primary. And so you're like constantly on CNN.com learning what the next move is from the different candidates. Maybe that's you. Maybe for some of you in here, this is like, you know, first week of the NFL. And so you have just devoured all fantasy football websites. I mean, you like had your list out and you were drafting, you know, 
all of your players and you know who's on you know waivers and IR and this whole deal. And so you just increased in your knowledge of the National Football League over the past week. My team put this in today, by the way. But, um, that's uh, not pertinent to the sermon. Um, so, so, so we're increasing in our knowledge of so many things in life. Are you increasing in your knowledge of God? A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is God infinitely glorious to you? Is he completely perfect? All the attributes of God being perfect in and of himself. His holiness, that he's other than us, that he's separate, unlike us. That he is love. That he has love and mercy that we can't even comprehend. He's so great in his love and mercy. That he is a God of justice. That he is a God that does not change. That he is a God that is self-existent and self-sufficient. Means that he exists in and of himself. He always has the eternality of God and that he is self-sufficient, unlike us. It means that he has no needs. You want to know a God like that? Read the Bible. Get a good book, like one on our resource page, knowing God, and increasing your knowledge of God. Number three, he prays that they would be strengthened to persevere. Look back in verse 11. This is an awesome prayer, right? Paul's not like, you know, He's not just taking a, a kind of a light approach to prayer here. He says, may they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious mind for all endurance and patience with joy. So let me summarize this. In other words, Paul doesn't just ask that they would do all these things and bear good fruit and, and, and do engage in good works and increase the knowledge of God, but he actually prays that God would give them the strength to actually carry those things out. This is what the New Testament teaches us and what St. Augustine has, this awesome quote where he says to God in a prayer, he says, God, command whatever you will, but give what you command. God, command whatever you will, but give what you command. In other words, ask me to do whatever you want me to do, but give me the strength to do it. And that's what he does. Why? Because the gospel is a gospel of grace. Not just to get us into the Christian life, but to keep us in the Christian life. So Paul prays that they would be strengthened to persevere. And then finally, in verse 12 and following, he prays that they would give thanks for the gospel. And you can see how his prayer for them is reflected of what's already happening in their life. And you say, well, why is that? I mean, it seems almost contradictory. Paul, you've already said this is going on in their life. Why would you pray for these very same things to keep happening in their life? And it's because Paul is not complacent. He's not just willing to sit back and kind of relax and coast. Paul wants more of Christ, more love, more mercy to all people, more glory to God. And so Paul says, keep increasing in these things that you're already experiencing because of the gospel. And so what and why do we give thanks for the gospel? Let's read verses 12 through 14. It says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his, the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of sins. Really, really quickly here. God has qualified us to share in an inheritance. 
So if we belong to the family of God, we have an inheritance that awaits us. That's better than any inheritance we could possibly you know, receive on this earth. Untold blessings, the totality of God's blessings to his people, we will receive it in Christ. Number two, he has delivered us from this domain of darkness where we used to live not for God, our life not for God. Now he has transferred us, he has given us a new address. So that now we belong to the kingdom of the Son. Now that we, we submit to the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. And we experience all the blessings that come from living for Jesus. And then number three, it says we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. So, so why would we want to name our church Redemption Hill Church? Because we understand that in the cross, on this hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus paid the price for my sin and your sin so that, that if you would believe him you might have life you might be reconciled to God so redemption is the idea that we are liberated from uh, our slavery to sin and living for ourselves in the world and now Christ has uh, un, uh, unchained our shackles so that we might now live for him and follow him and love him and worship him and we can have our sins I mean our lives when we don't live to God for it, it's an offense to God. Because God is perfect and He's perfectly And yet, in Christ, this is amazing. Not just your past sins, not just your present sins, but even your future sins. And they are many. They can all be wiped clean. As if you never committed one. So, God in the gospel, redeems us, forgives us of our sin, justifies us in Christ, counts us righteous in his Son because of what Christ has done for us. And so, do you ever pray the scripture? I mean, do you ever sort of pick it up like John did in our corporate prayer and just and just say, God, I pray that, that Jesse and Wag and Mag and Rwanda would be filled with the knowledge of the And all spiritual wisdom understand. So as walking and worthy of the full of the very full knowledge of Christian life. Can you start to pray that? It's a great way to pray. And even added to that, you can use these phrases and they can be trigger points, right? So so I pray that Lucy and Micah and Jean and Alice and Mark would be strengthened with all power to endure for you, to live out their faith today, when they're tempted and tired, that they would persevere in the faith so that they might live in a way that's pleasing to you. This is what Paul has done in these opening verses. He has given this word of thanks for how the gospel has changed their lives, and yet he's not content for them just to stay there. He wants to see them continue on, progressing and advancing. And the good news is this. That the gospel is on an unstop, unstoppable advance. It's been that way for 2,000 years, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Just read Acts 5. This Pharisee who wasn't about the gospel said, You know what, man? All these people who want to persecute Christians, if this thing is not of God, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. In fact, you'll find yourself fighting against God. So the church is on an unstoppable advance. The question is, is this a reality in your life? Do you see change in your life? Have you received Christ? Did you 
life looks different today than it did two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, after meeting Jesus. That should be our prayer as a church. We would grow deep and wide for the sake of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the, the transformative power that the gospel brings to us. And Lord, thank you that it's already happening in the life of this church. Wow, you're doing an awesome work here. And we just want to give you thanks and praise and pray that it will only continue in a greater ways. And so Lord, as we conclude our time and reflect on what we've heard, may we sing with joy and light of who you are and what you've done in our lives. And may we be motivated, Lord, to live differently for you this week because of your good grace to us in Christ and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.